it's good to be back with you and back to kind of like a normal schedule. And I hope that uh, even though last week's covenant service was very different for probably a lot of you, and I know it even weirded some of you all out. That's totally fine. Tommy is not a fan of the responsive reading, so y'all can commiserate together. Uh, I hope, I hope, uh, when you were done whining about it, you were challenged to refocus and set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. To commit yourself to the Lord in a new way in every nook and cranny of your life. Well, today uh, we have emerged from that, that powerful and kind of all-consuming seasons of Advent and Christmas, and we're going to transition to the season of Epiphany. Now, uh, no one, myself included, is going to fault you for being unfamiliar with the season of Epiphany because, frankly, that mystical, meaningful, heartwarming seasons of Advent and Christmas, they're so like all-consuming. Epiphany kind of gets lost in the shuffle, right? Um, if Advent, let's put it this way, if Advent is all about waiting in the darkness, kind of hoping against hope that God's going to keep his promises, and then Christmas is like this big birthday party, Epiphany is finally, finally walking out into the light of God's revelation in Jesus. If, if Advent's all about that darkness, Epiphany is walking into that light, finally. This is who God is in Jesus. Now, there are a few things more annoying in this world, and my husband will be saying amen to this, is when someone turns on the lights when you are still sleeping. Cozy and snuggled in the darkest, I see that hand, uh, happily snoozing, and then bam, the light in your eyes, and you're like, you animal. What are you doing, right? We blink and we grope and we gripe and we mutter at having the, or the comfortable embrace of darkness just stripped away, rudely rudely right but for a prisoner for someone who has been forgotten in the dark corner of a cell alone in utter darkness that bold eye-piercing radical light is the greatest gift who cares if my eyes are throbbing in pain from the light who cares if i see spots for five minutes just give me light after being trapped by the soul-crushing darkness just give me that life-giving light that is epiphany that is what it means. Having been oppressed by the darkness of sin and death and having felt the weight of our hopelessness apart from God, having waited so long for God to keep his promises, Epiphany flips on the light switch. And for those of us who are longing for relief, who are longing to know God, who want to follow after God, that light is so welcome. You're like, oh, finally, I can see where I'm going. But for those of us who prefer to linger in the darkness where the rebellion can hide in the shadows, where sin can flourish, that bursting in light of Jesus is painful and it's shocking and it's aggressive. And just like the Advent of season kind of had that multi-layered meaning. You know, every single week we'd say, we believe that God kept his promises and therefore God will keep them again. It was a thing about the past, but it was also about the future. And in the same way, Epiphany has that kind of multi-layered meaning as well. You see, in Epiphany, in Jesus, God has pulled back the curtain of heaven and shown us who God is, that he is for us, that there is room for all of us at God's dinner table, dirty hands and all, and that God is working for redemption and restoration in creation now. And so in Jesus, the light of God's goodness has broken into the world. That's great news. But after his death and resurrection, Jesus didn't stick around for long, remember? He returned to the Father and he sent the Spirit to the church to work for the kingdom of God until he came again. And that spirit rests upon us, the church, who are now the embodiment of that epiphany promise. We are now the ones who make God known to the world. 
We, the body of Christ, are the revelation of God to a world that is still clinging to the dark corners. And so as we live in faithfulness, as we seek to join God's mission of redemption in our neighborhoods and in our town, we take on that vocation of light with the story of God in our hearts and in our minds. We get to act out God's story right here and right now. We get to embody the light to a dark world. It sounds really awesome, like making a t-shirt. Vocation of light, right? A call to embody Jesus, to live his life, to love his way in the world. But the question I have to ask, and I know you're probably thinking, is I want to know what on earth does this have to do with my Monday kind of life? Like this beautiful language of this high calling. Do the feet of this calling ever touch the ground? Or is this one of those churchy conversations that we just kind of tuck in our pocket with a half stick of gum and a forgotten tissue until next week? Is this a Sunday thing? Or does this word have something to say to my Monday through Friday and don't forget Saturday kind of life? What does it mean in regular, ordinary life to, to do to be the epiphany of God, to be the light to the world, to be the light bearers, the darkness chasers, the Jesus people in our regular life. What does it look like to live well, to live rightly, to live faithfully? What does it look like to make choices that are in agreement with this life in Christ? So what I say and what I believe matches what I do. Does it have anything to do with this vocation in God? Does it have anything to do with how I make my decisions about what's right and what's wrong? And does it even matter? And so that's the question I want us to ask for the next few weeks. This Monday morning kind of faith, how following Jesus impacts uh, how I live, the actual choices that I make. Now, I know. I know myself, and you probably know even better than I do, that I am much, much better at preaching big narrative stories of scripture and of finding God's saving action in it. That's what I love to preach. I am not as good at preaching the nitty-gritty practical stuff. I know. I know. But I've been praying and asking God for wisdom in this and insight in how to approach this topic, and I think he has a word for us today and for the next couple weeks if we will have ears to hear. So how we answer this question, this whole question of what does it look like to obey God in my everyday life, usually falls on a spectrum of sorts with two extremes on either end. Now, I did this backwards in the first service, so I'm going to go this way, right? Got it. On this end are the ought-tos, all right? These are the kind of sermons that give you the to-dos and to-don't lists. You know what I'm talking about? Do read your Bible, don't drink alcohol, do give this amount of money to the church, and don't watch R-rated movies, you pagan. Right, that last little bit's kind of implied, right? Or on a more serious note, do save sex for marriage and don't you even think about getting divorced. This is the extreme world of the ought tos, the black and white. There are no regard for context. So in this camp, there is this sense that morality is fixed. It doesn't change. And honestly, if we're really honest, that's kind of a delusional perspective for a couple of different reasons. Now, I just I forgot to warn you, I'm going to ruffle your feathers, but I promise I'll bring it back around, so don't walk out, okay? Okay, we're in agreement. <laughs> Things that we thought were so morally fixed a generation ago, like interracial marriage or whatever, now we're like, that's awesome, bring it on. A year ago, a generation ago, you would have gone to jail for stuff like that. So morality, it's not as fixed as we like to think. So on this end of the spectrum, the ought to's, the prescriptive, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus model, 
the ultimate crime? You know what the ultimate sin is? Boundary breach. Break the rules. Break the boundary. Disregard the prescription we have established as the litmus test of faithfulness, and you're out. That's the ultimate sin. And the favorite verse would be, the disobedient go away to eternal punishment and the righteous live unto eternal life. Because there are clear boundaries of who is in and who is out. Got it? Now, some of you are like, yeah, that's exactly right. That is the way. Control is best. Clear boundaries are best. Black and white. None of this wishy-washy gray stuff. Because perhaps you've seen the consequences of free love a generation gone by. And you've seen the consequence of a life lived without boundaries. You know that's not a good path. And so that scares you. You'd rather have this boundary established, black and white kind of thing, definable, sturdy barriers. Now, there are others of you that are shaking your head in disgust because what I've just described to you is so distasteful that you might even think it is ignorant or backward or lacking in mercy. And so... On the other end of the spectrum, we have the what I like to call the live and let live crowd. Over here, we got the ought to, the boundary builders, and here we have the live and let live folks. If on the other hand, everything is black and white, on this end, everything is gray, baby, right? No defined boundaries, as long as you're not hurting anybody, which again, they're delusional too, because you know what the clear boundary they do have? If you don't think like them, you're out, right? Exactly. And so just live and let live and quit get tangled up in what everybody else thinks is right and wrong. and Everything's contextual, so who are you to judge, right? And so if over here the ultimate sin was boundary breach, over here the ultimate sin, you know what it is? Being judgmental. That's the ultimate sin. So their favorite verse is, he who is without sin cast the first stone, buddy. Right? Now very few people are going to find yourself, none of us are probably going to find ourselves on the absolute end of either of these spectrums. I've painted a pretty unpleasant picture of both of them. But we do probably lean one direction or another because we are all just trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong and how am I supposed to live in this ever-changing world. But this whole spectrum thing, both of its extremes, they lead us astray. They are wrong-headed from the very beginning. Because this whole ought to crowd, the boundary setting, this whole thing, that story is dead. Because it is a sorry attempt to reenact scripture, the story of God, but without the life-giving, animating breath of the Spirit that teaches us and guides us and instructs us in new ways. Imagine that. And yet over here, this other extreme of the live and let live it's acting out the wrong story altogether because it's embodying a story that centers around me, around my perspective, my view of the world, my in-the-moment perception of what's right and wrong. And it doesn't revolve around God's saving action and his call to walk a new way. They're both wrong. So neither extreme really gives us the tools or the answer to the question that we ask on Monday, like what's the right decision in this business deal? Or how do I approach this conflict with my spouse? Or should I marry this guy? Or should we just gonna like test it out for a while and move in? Uh, should I drink alcohol? Should I drink it a little bit or maybe a lot? Or should I go like full teetotaler? Like what's the right way? Now this spectrum, it tries to untangle all of these morality knots, but it ends up just wrapping us up 
and head to toe, like a really nasty set of Christmas lights with no hope of freedom. Because it's asking the wrong question. The question is not, what's the right choice? The question is, what kind of person am I becoming? You see, the ultimate question of Monday morning and Saturday night, those dilemmas, is not a moral question. It's an identity question. Who am I? And how does that inform and shape what I do? Now, some of you are thinking an identity question. Are we really going to have to, like, journal or something? See, this identity question, what I'm suggesting, is not some weird invitation to introspection. I'm not going to ask you to meditate on your favorite color. But rather, it is an invitation to see yourself through the primary relationships in your life, through your relationship with God, through your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and through your relationship with the world. How, do who, how does who I am in God shape my choices? How does how I relate to you, my brothers and sisters, how does that influence my choices? And how does my relationship with the world and me to Jesus, how does that influence my choices? Now, to kind of guide us on this identity journey, we're going to be hanging out in 1 Corinthians for a few weeks, so you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. It's the very first letter we have from Paul to the church in Corinth. And in ancient Corinth, it was a lively place to live, let me tell you. It was a part of the Roman Empire, just like much of the known world at the time. And it was very wealthy because it was a great port city, had strong trade and all that good stuff. And they hosted these major athletic competitions, and so it was like the place to be, okay? And not only that, they were also the primary worshipers of the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure and procreation. So it's like, kind of thing, okay? Now, according to historians, hundreds if not thousands of people of men and women were taking as slaves and courtesans into this temple to her service, which included some pretty intense worship practices that were very sexual in nature. And so this is the culture in which they were immersed, Okay quite the culture to live in when you're trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus? Is it the just live and let live, don't cast the first stone, do your best and forget the rest kind of model? Or is it the the let's go back into the laws and boundaries of Judaism to control and direct behavior because that's a lot safer? So these are the two questions that they're trying to ask. And so much like us, the Jesus followers in Corinth are trying to figure out What does it look like to follow Jesus in the murky waters of our culture? Like there is some really good stuff happening in their culture, but there are some really dark and toxic things as well. So how's a girl supposed to know the way to go? And so as we open up to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 6, by the way, um, what we're really hoping for is like an ethics recipe card. Wouldn't that be delightful? Just a dash of this and a sprinkle of that and a whole heap of this, and voila, you have a perfectly formed cake of morality. But no, because remember, that's the wrong question. We are less concerned about hammering out what's right and what's wrong, and we are more concerned about what kind of people we are becoming. Because if we figure out what kind of people we're becoming, the rest will follow. So let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
never do you not know that whoever is united with a prostitute becomes one body with her for it is said the two shall be one flesh but if anyone is united in the lord becomes one spirit with him so shun fornication every sin that a person commits is outside the body but the fornicator sins against the body itself or do you not know your body's a temple of the holy spirit within you which you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but we should not let anything make us its slave. Now yesterday, we were driving in the car. My brother and my sister-in-law made Tommy, me, and the kids. And we were talking about like paying bills or something. I don't even know what you're talking about. Something adulty, you know? And Jojo, out of the blue, goes, I just want to be six. Like in that kind of whiny voice. And I was like, well, why, Jojo? She goes, I just want to do big kid things. And I said, well, Jojo, what are the big kid things that you really want to do that you can't do now that you're five? She goes, I really want to have a job. <laughs> I was like, be my guest, honey. Go for it. But it reminded me of a story from when I was a kid. I used to listen to the, I've told you this before, I used to listen to those Adventures and Odyssey tapes from Focus on the Family. And there was this story about a girl named Erica. And she desperately wanted to be a grown-up. She was so tired of the oppression of her mother. She was like 13. Um, she was so tired of following her rules and her boundaries. And she just wanted to be an adult and do her own thing, right? And so Mr. Whitaker, who's like the kindly grandpa who comes in and teaches everyone lessons, uh, he says, okay, you're going to go in the room of consequence. It's my invention, and we're going to let you try out what it means to be an adult. So Erica hops in the room of consequence, and whoosh, voila, she's 22, right? Oh, the perfect age, supposedly. And at first, she loves it. She's eating whatever she wants, and she's staying up late, and she has a real job and money. But it doesn't take long, of course, for the consequences to catch up. She's so tired from her late-night escapades that she doesn't go to work, and she gets fired. She spends all of her money irresponsibly and can't pay rent. She eats everything she wants, and by the end of the week, her pants don't button, which is so funny that they included that in the story. Because I was like, oh, that's terrible. But Erica learns so quickly, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but we can't let anything make us its slaves. And so as adults, we, oh, we certainly don't play such childish games, running amok, doing whatever we want, because we can. <laughs> Well, I won't speak for you, Andrew, uh, but the, the more grown-up way to talk about this is freedom, what I can and cannot do. You know, Paul draws on some local philosophy in his discussion. He says, all things are lawful. You're right. I am free. I can choose whatever I want. But Paul makes it, he wants to make it really clear to the Corinthians that he's not trying to put some burdensome yoke of the law back on their shoulders to get them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He is not dishing out a list of ought-tos and threatening them with exclusion if they commit the crime of boundary breaching. He's not doing that. But he's also rejecting the other extreme, the whole live and let live thing. All things are lawful, guys. You're right. But not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but do you really want to end up as a slave to something else? Your desires, your appetites, your cravings, your ego? Paul is throwing out the spectrum altogether because the dichotomy is a false one. He says in Galatians 5, he says, It is for freedom that you have been set free. 
that Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're free. You are free from the extreme of legalism and all those old indicators of who's in and who's out. Like, are you circumcised? Did you eat that? Did you drink this? Do you have the right tassels on your robe? But you're also free from this other end, this lie, this whole live and let live thing, because it's a lie. It's a lie that peddles freedom, but it's really just slavery in a different shirt. Slavery to our wants and our cravings and our passions and our agenda. We are free from all of that, from both ends of that nonsense. We are free from that stuff. And we are not just free from, we are free for. We are free for something. We are free to join the family, finally. Fully included, a seat at the table. You are free to join the family mission, to embrace your role in God's redemptive work in the world. Free to give yourself fully to Jesus. You see, freedom is not the same thing as independence. And that's kind of a hard concept for us Americans because we identify the two so closely. But, you know, see, freedom is not independence, like I don't need anybody else. Freedom, true freedom in Christ, is being rightly related. Rightly related and rightly living into our true identity. Rightly embracing who we are and therefore rightly living into that new name of Christian. Because remember, it's not about figuring out what's right and what's wrong because it could change tomorrow. It's about becoming the right kind of person kind of person who reflects the family resemblance, the image of Jesus on Monday at work, Tuesday at the grocery store, Wednesday paying bills on Thursday, bickering with your spouse, because that never happens, on Friday with your head in your hands trying to figure out how to parent, and on Saturday trying to figure out what to do with your Wednesday night. So who are you? Who are you? What does scripture say that you are? You, beloved, are the chosen child of God. You are not the unloved second best transplant kid in the corner that everybody just tolerates. You are the beloved. You are given a seat of honor at the table with dad. You are a new creation. You have been set free from the chains of your past. That lock is broken. You are loosed. You are God's workmanship crafted uniquely to contribute to God's redemptive work in the world as only you can do. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You are no longer a servant or a slave, but you are called a friend of God. You are a citizen of the kingdom. You are a light of the world, not to be hidden under a bucket, but to be set high on a stand for the world to see the light of Jesus. You are the embodiment of the epiphany promise. You are a saint, not some china doll on a shelf, not some model car under glass, but you are a real life dirt on your fingernails saint, a holy one of God who has been made holy, not by your own works, but by the work of Christ. And you have been sent out into the world to live and to love like him. You are forgiven and free. You are called and equipped. You are treasured and embraced. Not tomorrow, today, right now this minute. Isn't that good news? So the question becomes, as we look to Monday and Tuesday and Saturday, how does who I am shape what I do? 
What does my identity in Christ have to say about the choices that I make? Remember, the question is not, is it right or wrong? But what kind of person am I becoming? More like Jesus or less? Now, some of you are itching for a list. Please just tell me what to do exactly and what not to do, too. That would be really great. This should be your stance on this, and this is how you should proceed in this, and you should definitely not do that. But I'm sorry, I just, I don't play those kind of preacher games. And some of you are waiting for me to say, just, you just need to do what feels right in your heart. Just trust your heart and act accordingly. Wrong again. I can promise you I will never utter those words. Because my heart is so untrustworthy to make such decisions. I would never suggest you trust yours. No. I'm going to give you some tools for your belt. As you are learning to release yourself, as we are learning to release ourselves into the, fully into this identity as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, as we are learning to put our full weight on the chair of his love and acceptance, as we are hungering to know what it means to follow Jesus more faithfully, here are some tools, some questions actually to help us live rightly, not based on some rigid moral standard and not based on some slippery personal standard we create for ourselves, but based on our identity in Christ and our vocation to partner with him in redemption. So here is the questions that I want you to ask of yourself. If I do fill in the blank, whatever it is, will this choice move me closer or further away from Jesus? If I do, fill in the blank, will this choice ultimately ultimately make me more free or less free? Does it open me up to addiction? Does it make me a slave to anything? If I do, fill in the blank, will this choice enable me to be a light to the world or will it hinder it? If I do, fill in the blank, Will this choice cause me to rely on anything more than Jesus? Mm. Ultimately, if I persist in this choice, if this becomes a habit, who will I become? That is the question you need to ask. Not is this right or is this wrong, but if I live into this, if this is the path I choose, what's the end game? Who do I become? Well, hear this word of the Lord from Romans chapter 6. This is Paul speaking to us. So since we are out from under that old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we are free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that actually destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourselves to the ways of God, and the freedom never quits. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do, but thank God you have started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. 
I'm using this freedom language because it's easier to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time, the more you did just like you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. So how much different is it now? As you live in God's freedom, your life's healed and expansive in holiness. As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What do you get out of it? Nothing we're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. And this is the the conclusion of Romans 6. It says, but now that you've found, you don't have to listen to sin to tell you what to do. And you have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A hold, healed, put together life right now with more and more life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our master. The word of the Lord. Offer yourselves to God, and the freedom never quits. May we stop asking the question and meddling in the rights and the wrongs, and instead fix our eyes on Jesus and say, how does who I am in him shape what I do? If I persist in this choice, will I look more like Jesus or less? You see, we are no longer slaves. We are children, beloved and chosen. May we live life. Lord, this is the good word that you have spoken over us, that we are your beloved child. And you call us not to some eternal wrestling match to figure out what's right and what's wrong. But Lord, you have called us to fix our eyes on you. And that we would pass every thought, every choice through the lens of our relationship to you. Will this draw me closer to you? Will this expose me to slavery again? Will this make me more like you in character? Will this cause me to rely on anything above you? God, will you help us? Give us the courage to open every cupboard in our heart and let you in to take a look to see the areas in which we might not have submitted to your lordship. The places where we are still clinging to chains from which you have set us free. Lord, you are a chain breaker. So would you help us to live into our identity of freedom, our chosenness in you. Lord, make a way. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand as we conclude our service today. Well, beloved, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction today, the good word. Beloved, may you sit with your full weight on the chair of his love and acceptance. You are a child of God. Walk into his freedom and let him make a way. He is the chain breaker. Go in action and go in peace. Amen. You are dismissed.